Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2006 and little Lord, baby Jesus... In your cute little manger, doing your baby Einstein. Please bless this podcast so we can speak about the greatness of Ricky Bobby and his smoking hot wife and let everyone know about the dangers of snowbind this in Cats, the movie Talladega Nights. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, And this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we're going to fire them into outer space. And Amy, today we are starting our Contender series where we are looking at Oscar-nominated filmmakers, actors, writers, directors, pictures, and going and looking at a different one of their works. Maybe it was nominated. Maybe it wasn't nominated. And today we are starting off with Adam McKay and Talladega Nights. And we are kind of relating that to Don't Look Up. Um, But before we get into that, I want to get your hot take on what has been going on with the Academy Awards. I know it's just, it's a little bit old news, but I wanted to hear what you thought about them eliminating uh, the television presentations of hair and makeup, production design, uh, music, the score, you know, uh, and we're talking all about all the shorts, editing, editing. It really is interesting in a weird way. It feels like the Academy Awards are constantly trying to get people interested. And my big argument is then nominate movies that people give a shit about. Like, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I think the grand population of America does not care about the movies that are being lofted up. The, you know, the movies that are deemed award worthy. People don't care. That's the reason why people aren't tuning in. It's not because like, oh, it went too long. The Super Bowl goes on for like four hours. Like no one's complaining about the length. It's no one wants to watch because no one gives a shit. I hate it. The only people who give a shit are the people who deeply care about movies and the people who deeply care about movies care about things like editing and best score. And they care about things like the Academy understanding its place in the world. I mean, here is the movie business. It is gigantic. 
thousands of movies coming out all the time, every year, big things, employing millions and millions of people around the world. And they're like sacrificing so much goodwill among the people who do the work in Hollywood for one night of ad ratings on television. These are two different mediums even. I don't even know why the Academy should care so much about television ratings. Like they should know that they are bigger than one night of ratings. Plus every year they freak out. Oh no, the ratings went down. Oh no, the ratings went down. Ratings are going down on literally everything, everywhere. Like, no award show is killing it in the ratings. The Golden Globes didn't even happen this year on TV and nobody cared. The Olympics happened. I didn't watch any Olympics because honestly, at this point, I don't even know how to watch things on basic television. And like, what do they think is going to happen? I mean, I do feel like dot, 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 within 10 years, we're going to have, you know, the Oscars on Hulu or Netflix. But like... We'll have the Netflix Awards. We'll have the Hulu Awards. We'll have the Peacocks. We'll have every streamer will have their own award show. And then we'll get to watch multiple versions of it. Yeah. But I just fundamentally don't think the Academy should be taking orders from ABC, ABC wanting a shorter broadcast. No, I just, but I also just, feel like, it, but not the point. But to me, it's not about the length. And look, I love these movies. I love talking to you about these classic films that we we're talking about. I love watching all these movies that are up for nominations but the the issue is exactly what you said like i think most people don't really care and because of that that's why they're not tuning in and i think what they're trying to do is streamline it so you at least see a bunch of stars accepting awards but i do think at the end of the day like as great as no man land is i don't think that's moving the needle. Like, I don't think if you got to Francis McDormand accepting an award earlier in the night, more people are tuning in because I don't think that Francis McDormand is moving the needle. And I don't think that Nomadland is moving the needle. And that doesn't mean that that is a bad thing. It's just like, well, that's what it is. It is this. It's not supposed to be, I guess, back in the day, there were... Titanic, Lord of the Rings. Like, we had big things getting nominated. Occasionally. 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 And we know going back in the show that, like, it used to be, it felt like, in the Oscars, that, like, the top box office contender of the year actually won all the Oscars. There used to be, like, a real synergy between, like, Ben-Hur at the Oscars and Ben-Hur at the box office. And that doesn't exist anymore. What I will say is, like, what they're cheating us of are some of my favorite speeches. Because you know it's the girl in hair and makeup who shows up in the coolest outfit. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, who is that? And everybody stops at the party to be like, what are they saying? It's always the shorts directors who are total nutballs. And I love them. We don't get the short directors this year. We don't get to see like, hi, it's me, my big moment at the Oscars. I don't even know what I'm wearing. And I did my own hair. Like, come on. I love it all. But also, I think it really corrupts what we are celebrating, which is the the art of making a movie. And I've gone on this high horse on this show plenty of times. Like, how can you have a best picture without nominating the director? How can you have a best picture without an editor? And to eliminate the editor, to eliminate the sound, to eliminate the hair and makeup from, I know they're still giving out those awards, but from the show, you are basically dumbing down the making of movies. And you're you're saying, we're just going to have a show for actors and directors. Like, that's basically it. And whoever yeah. we can get to come sing those songs, and we'll do the death in memoriam, and you'll leave sad but happy. Like, I mean, they really are knocking it down to the smallest things, where, in my opinion, they should be expanding things and going like, here's the best comedy, here's 
the Stunt Award. Here is the best, you know, Oscar for, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but like the People's Choice Award. Like, you know, what are what is the the you know, is there a blockbuster award? Yeah, which they're trying Bring to back the sort surfboard. of add, right? On like a hashtag. But Oh the, yeah, but I mean, like that seems thing, like, already suspect. I saw yeah. that like Army of the Dead was leading that at right at the out of oh, the gate. Of course. Oh, of course. Oh oh God bless that corner of the internet. But here's the thing, like And no offense to Army of the Dead, but I'm I'm just saying I mean, like Spider Man? We're not gonna put Spider Man? Like, come on. Like, I mean, the, and then this year, we're not going to say Spider-Man. Like, we're going to say Army of the Dead. I, I, no one. All right. Anyway. Okay. But anyway, what I'm saying is, like, the show you're describing them mutating into, you know, not your dream show, but the show they are. All the actors, some directors, bada bing, bada boom, we're out. We have a million of those. They're, like, called the Critics' Choice Awards. They're, you know, the Golden Globes. Nobody cares. They're the MTV Awards. Like, we have that show already. I love already. the MTV Awards. What, what I know, I do love them, but what none of those shows have is the prestige of the Oscars. Right. None of those shows are the Oscars. The Oscars are singular because they are definitive. They are highbrow. They actually care about the movies. Are they we don't becoming just have dumber? Best, best Kiss, which is always really fun. But like, yeah, if the Oscars don't know that they're the Oscars, then they're devaluing their entire award show. They are the Oscars. When you are the big dog, you rest assured knowing that you're the big dog and you don't try to compete with like, I don't know, a rerun of the Big Bang Theory. I don't know. I think there's an element to all of this where it's like it focuses up the big problem, which is all these studios chase this award and want these awards. And if no one's watching these awards, then what does it do? It's basically just like, 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 what are we selling? Like, we're celebrating like an industry award that no one cares about that's just used as bragging rights within the inner circles of awards. Like, it's like, well, Paramount won 10 Academy Awards. Well, Warner Brothers won four. Like, like I just feel like we're just are like we're just posturing in front of people. And I guess now it's like Netflix versus Paramount. I don't even know. It just it just feels like it just all feels so weird. All this money spent to movies that not that many people have seen, but that are prestigious, that no one really cares about. But the only people who care about them are the people who put them in their lobby. So when you walk in, you feel like, ooh, they do some good stuff here. But the people who do good stuff, I think, are the people that we are like, oh, I love that actor. I love this movie. I love this, you know, this type of performance and, and what people are talking about. I don't know. I just feel like it's a weird, I have, a, I have issues with award shows in general. But Me too. The Oscars just feel like they're back on their heels. You know, they've taken a lot of blows They've done a lot to try to improve their ranks, try to like improve the at least the people who are voting on the movies, even if the movies themselves aren't getting better. But basically every year, I feel like there's some sort of shakeup behind the scenes at the Oscars, some sort of we're doing it new, we're doing it new. And I just think when you're it's like a, it's like when you're cutting your own hair and you kind of screw up. And so you just keep trimming it over here and then like, oh, I screwed that up. And then you just keep going and then you have no hair left and you look a mess. I and think like, what we that's want what the Oscars are doing to themselves. I think what we really, really want is a variety show with A-list celebrities. Like, that's what I think they're trying to do on some level. It's like, do you want to see The Rock with Reese Witherspoon doing a bit about James Cameron? Like, yes. Do you want to see, you know, it's like, do you want to see, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda sing? You know, great. Like, it's like, we want to see a fucking old-school variety show, and they just are pushing it in that direction, which, by the way, 
Maybe that's what you have to do. Everyone who performs gets an award. You got to get out. Like, if you want to get Best Actor Award, you got to go up there and you got to do a, 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 like an old school Carol Burnett sketch. Get I mean, Ben Affleck up there with Denzel Washington. Put him in wigs. Oh, my goodness. You know, like, whatever it is. I think that's what people, I, I think that that's what we want when we tune in. It's like, yeah, let's see all these people interact. It's like, it's not that. Well, that is how we uh, award winners on our game show screen test. I mean, that is true. That so is there true. you go. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I will say uh, one other thing, uh, just going back to an episode that we did a little while ago, The Shining. Um, there was uh, some hubbub online about The Shining after we did the episode, which we always seem to be in the zeitgeist of certain things. But uh, a lot of attention was given to the fact that that famous line, when Jack Nicholson breaks into uh, the the bathroom where Shelley Duvall is trying to escape out the window and he goes, here's Johnny. Um Kubrick did not know that that was a reference to Johnny no. Carson. And uh, and that was an improvised line that Jack Nicholson came up with. And uh, something that he wanted to cut, but he didn't understand what it was. And then he did understand what it was. And he wanted to cut it. And they fought about it. And they kept it in. But that, mo- that moment, that moment was completely improvised and probably only was left in because Kubrick was not in the know. And I love that. You think of Johnny Carson, especially in that time, we're talking about like we're going back and when people were watching TV and everything was going on like that. Kubrick had no idea what that was. And I love that so much. He was too busy torturing people in his own studio. He was building many models of uh, bedrooms and uh, camera angles. Uh, You're doing 100 takes a day. You don't have time to go home. Which, by the way, I said in a very negative way. He's a genius and it's amazing. If you ever can uh, seek out the documentary 100 Boxes, it's an amazing uh, documentary about Kubrick. And they go through all these boxes that he kept in his house. Uh, All right, Amy. Let's. We are talking about the Oscars. So what a great way to kick it off by... (laughs) saying they're full of shit. Uh, but, uh, but besides that, let's get into this contender series and let's shake and unspool it. Love it. <laughs> the year is 2006. Facebook becomes open to anyone 13 and older. Twitter is launched and Google buys YouTube, a barely one-year-old company for $1.6 billion in stocks. Time Magazine Person of the Year is you, as in all of us, but specifically World Wide Web users. Pixar is bought by Disney, and a 16-year-old from Detroit purchases the billionth download on iTunes. His song, The Speed of Sound by Coldplay. And I'm hoping that that is the song on the radio when this movie comes out. Audiences are watching Cars, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Jackass Number 2, and... Talladega Nights. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Give me all the deets. Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, is directed by Adam McKay and co-written by McKay and Ricky Bobby himself, Will Ferrell. Here's the story of Ricky Bobby. He is an all-American race car driver who believes in just a few things. Being number one, being number one, and making lots of money sponsoring Powerade thanks to being number one. Uh, His dad, Reese Bobby, played by Gary Colt, taught Ricky that just before he sped out of his life when Ricky Bobby was a kid. But now he does have the perfect life. He's got a devoted race car driving best friend named Cal, who's played by John C. Riley. He's got a sort of devoted wife named Carly, who's played by Leslie Bibb. He's got two kids, Walker and Texas Ranger. And he's got the love of millions of NASCAR fans until a French Formula One driver named Jean, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, makes Ricky Bobby a loser. And Ricky Bobby learns that America does not like losers. Take a listen. 
I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, right. but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace, I just want to say that Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's dig it. Talladega Nights hit theaters on August 4th, 2006, and it made a ton of money. It is actually the third highest grossing Adam McKay film after, can you guess? Can you guess what the top two highest grossing Adam McKay films are? Really? I thought this is the highest grossing Adam McKay film. All right, then I would say... The other guys and Anchorman 2, but Anchorman 2 being number one and other guys being number two. Oh, my God. You're exactly right. Yeah. Whoa. Okay, Paul. Okay. I only say that because Anchorman 1 I knew wasn't going to be the big hit because that was kind of uh, under the radar one. The sequel is going to be huge. And then I also knew that the action element of the other guys with... uh, with obviously Mark Wahlberg and him was going to push that movie above. But I did think this was the number one highest grossing film that he did. Wow. You're really a genius. You should have I really put it all together. <laughs> all right. Well, so what was in the zeitgeist on the Billboard charts that weekend of August 4th, 2006? It was Nelly Furtado and her big career pivot. You know that moment when Nelly Furtado went from being like, I'm like a bird, to this hit, Promiscuous Girl. <laughs> I almost want to pop quiz you on this, on what could connect Nellie and Adam and Will. But I see the terror in your eyes and you're really on a high right now. So I'll just tell you. Okay, sure. Okay. Saturday Night Live. I, I, so, well, I was well, going to say, that was going to be my guess, and I thought that was too <laughs> simple of a guess. Like, of course, Saturday Night Live. Of course, yeah. I, we'll I see. wish you would have given me a, a chance. I would have said it. Oh, man. <laughs> well, Adam and Will met on Saturday Night Live, of course. You know, like, Adam was the head writer. Will was, I would say, like, the unofficial head star. More on that later. Uh, they both quit around the same time to become big deal movie guys. Adam quit Saturday Night Live in 2001. Will quit Saturday Night Live in 2002. But before they both quit, they were on Saturday Night Live with Nelly Furtado on January 13th, 2001. This is significant because that is one week before the inauguration of George Walker Bush. And for the first time, Adam McKay got to debut a character who I think represents his own career pivot from comedies to political satires like Don't Look Up, the one that he's nominated for right now. And this is that guy. Hello, America. I'm Dick Cheney. And I am as thrilled as is medically prudent for me to be 
to have been elected your new vice president. I come before you tonight to assure every citizen that I will work for you to strengthen our listing economy. Now, if you make less than $264,000 a year, I'm going to ask you to please turn the channel. Go ahead. Turn it! There's probably some NASCAR on. Good. Now I can speak freely. Listen. Put all your money into defense stocks and move to a gated community because there's going to be some pissed off poor people in the next four years. I love that. I love this idea that Adam McKay has always been the guy who really wants to just like stick it to Dick Cheney, stick it to the government. And he's kind of consistently done that. I feel like on the outside, we think of like Adam McKay as a guy who made this big career shift from being like a comedian to being like a political satirist. But honestly, I think he's kind of been the same all along. We're just noticing it now. Oh, I mean, without a doubt, I don't think it's even that hidden. I think one of the things that put Adam McKay on the map, obviously he was associated with the Upright Citizens Brigade, which we see the legacy of that. He was in the original group of the Upright Citizens Brigade. But what got him hired for SNL was this show at Second City called Pinata Full of Bees. Now, Second City was known for doing these shows. This is all off the top of my head, so I'm sorry if I miss any details here. But they were doing these reviews for tourists. Very, like quick skits and a little bit of like funny wordplay, very basic, please the whole audience kind of shows. And Pinata Full of Bees comes in and it is just a game changer. It is political, but with like a bite, not just like, oh, this politician is dumb or this thing is corrupt. It is truly just getting to the heart of issues. There's no blackouts. Everything's interconnected. Scenes come back. Tina Fey, I believe, is in Pinata Full of Bees. Scott Adzit is in Pinata Full of Bees. Uh, John Glazer. So many great people come through this show. It, it's it's phenomenal. So that is the show that gets him hired at SNL. He quickly becomes the head writer at SNL. And I think McKay has always been able to str- like straddle this line of being like this pop culture savant, like, Chicago guy in a way where he can talk about basketball and get in there and just be uh, incredibly masculine, but then also incredibly well-read. And it's this interesting dichotomy. And I think when him and uh, Will Ferrell kind of meet up at SNL, they just explode together because Will has this kind of just boundless confidence. And then you put McKay behind that and you get this energy of these two guys, I think has, you know, put them both on the map on the show. And then obviously Anchorman and, and Step Brothers, Talladega, all their all their work together. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom. 
Phantom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Yeah, I mean, what I love about, like, going back to McKay's roots is he would do crazy stuff just for fun. Like, once he was really involved in hearing that there was, like, this corn sweeteners union protest, Mm -hmm. and, like, corn sweeteners, what, used to, like, sweeten all of the soda in America. And the people who are working this union, you know, they're getting, like, kicked out, replaced by scabs. There was a huge, huge drama going on that he was really upset about. So he noticed that there was, like, kind of a Pepsi corporate event happening in, um, in the pier, So he like dressed up as a Pepsi executive, just walked up and tried to give a speech about how much he loved Pepsi and like, you know, how great Pepsi is with friends in the audience who were kind of planted to start a protest against himself so that like people would start protesting him, the Pepsi executive guy, so that he could draw attention to what was happening to this corn sweeteners union. That was just something he just did, you know, like, like, yes, I mean, yes. And like, I know a lot about all this sort of stuff because this is my whole, these are the people that I've worked with and and been with for a long time, like the family, which was kind of the start of the Upright Citizens Brigade, would do these insane shows. Like one of the insane shows that they did was a show called like Virtual Reality, where they went out into the street and they were just doing sketches in the street. Uh, and I think that might have been the same show or there was another show where it was advertised as Tonight Watch Adam McKay Die. And he did a sketch on a rooftop which ended in him jumping off the building. And it was just uh, a dummy thrown off the top of the building. And that energy and and that like vibe really came through in the UCB. I mean, part of the UCB, when they came to town, were doing these pranks. And even when we started doing shows at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, we were just getting in the mix. I remember telling people to come see our shows. We had uh, one of my friends dressed up as uh, Santa Claus and we had these like rolls of wrapping paper and we would say beat Santa uh, and tell him that he never gave you anything for Christmas and people would come over and beat Santa and then we would give them a flyer for our show but that all that energy was McKay energy it was like what can you do and look Besser too and everybody but that Chicago energy of like we are breaking the mold here and I think part of that came out of the Herald and part of that came out of like we're we're doing something different than traditional sketch comedy. So it was very yeah, aggressive. And part of and that really came fun. out of like him training under like Del Close, you know, like Del right. Close would say like what he like valued about, you know, yeah. What he, what he valued about like improv was that he said that improv was a process where individuals move towards a higher state of group consciousness. You know, and he said that like, when you really love comedy, you learn that like the hardest laughs come from our deepest pains, which I think is something that McKay really took to heart. And I think Del Close also taught him, he used to tell him, you know, if you aim for comedy and you miss, you wind up with crap. But if you aim for something higher, if you aim for art or making a political statement and you miss, then you can kind of get lucky and you can hit comedy. So he was he was trained from just like his first days in comedy to really like aim higher, go for the bigger joke. But then also just like he would do crazy stuff. Like once when he was like doing one of his live shows, he stopped the show to announce that Clinton had died just because because yeah. he could because it was a time before cell phones. He could just do that. He could well, interrupt his own shows and just be like, by the way, here's what the United States is like spending on military. I you know? remember seeing Adam McKay perform with the UCB when I first started watching them on Sundays and below rebar in New York City, which is like a where the UCB were performing their weekly shows. And I was like, who is this guy? Because he would do these really aggressive moves. And one of the things that he was a part of was another improv group called Feature Feature or the movie form. It was called the movie form. We co-opted it and made it Feature Feature in New York. But uh, the movie form was 
an improv show where you would only use film language and you would say, all right, we, you know, we fade in, we do an extreme close up, we cut here, we smash cut. Like you would, you would treat the improv show as if you were reading uh, a script. Uh, and it was really well thought out and the genres were really incredibly defined. And that along with the anarchist kind of movement that he did there, uh, all kind of came together. Now, as a matter of fact, I don't even think I thought about this until we started talking about it. Adam McKay directed uh, a show that I was in at UCB called uh, George Bush is a Motherfucker. And that was a show that we did with me, Rob Riggle, Rob Hubel, Owen Burke, um, Jackie Clark, a handful of other people. And uh, he would come in, and this is right about the time when Adam McKay was done being the head writer of SNL, around 2000, he was doing his short films. And if you look on SNL during this time when he was making short films, like he had weird titles like The Head of Falconry. And uh, every episode, he had a different kind of credit. And the SNL short films, you got to check them out. You can find them. They're like the uh, the HSO, which is like Ben Stiller and Will Ferrell. There's a great one with like uh, Steve Buscemi about a pawn shop. There is uh, just great bits. Um, there were these really interesting artistic shorts. But during that time, he was kind of making those shorts. They were airing on SNL. But he also was kind of mentoring us and and giving us notes on our show, which started with random security checks. Before people could come into the theater, we would frisk them because this is the time of like uh, red alert, yellow alert, amber alert. And so the whole show was like engaging the audience and like literally making them feel uncomfortable from the moment they bought a ticket to get to their seats. (laughs) I mean, that makes perfect sense. Like he is a guy who I value because even today he's speaking out about like kind of the creeping you know, rise of like Bush nostalgia. Like he Mm -hmm. was a guy who just was horrified by George Bush from the beginning, even before like the war started in Iraq and Afghanistan. And like, you know, even now he's like, it is madness that there's like some sort of idea of like nostalgia for the Bush era. Like when he saw George Bush go on Ellen DeGeneres and like them dance together on her talk show, he had like a freak out. He's like, I will never let Bush nostalgia happen. I'm going to like keep speaking out about it. But like, yeah, he was a guy who I think helped define even the, who Bush was in the public consciousness before everything really like went loose. Like, And I also think, you you know, part of that association, which is kind of interesting to talk about here, is like the face of George Bush for most people is Will Ferrell. Right. I mean, so exactly. much so much so that he did an uh, an off Broadway run and maybe even a Broadway run. I can't remember where it all ended up, but of this show uh, that Will wrote. And it was a masterful kind of takedown. But the two of them had these points of view on this man. And I think the parody or the kind of deconstruction of him was so defined because of Will's personality and performing abilities and McKay's uh, amazing writing. And Will is also an amazing writer, too. And that show, I remember he tested out that show at one of our UCB shows uh, one night. He came and he's like, hey, can I just do my show instead of your show and we didn't tell the audience and we and he did like a full just first time read through of it and it was it was genius and that was like the first time McKay saw it the first time it was like I've been working on this idea I want to do this thing so I think the two of them together really define like the version the asshole version of Bush the lovable version of Bush but also it was constantly you know uh picking at that scab like this guy's a, a bad dude yeah. Yeah. Like I want to actually play a clip of like one of his first 
Bush's. And this is like from, uh, this is Will Ferrell doing Bush right after Bush got elected, but before he was inaugurated. And in this scene, you can hear like Bush talking to his dad, uh, Dana Carvey's back as like George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, and they're deer hunting. And you, the, the laugh you hear at the moment is you kind of get the sense that George Herbert Walker Bush is realizing how bad his son is for this country. And maybe he should just save America right now. Look over here. I'm sorry, Rudolph. Looks like the governor will not grant you a reprieve. <laughs> one, two, and I hey, three. hold up. Come on now. How about letting this one get away? What do you say, son? Sure, Dad. I know what you're saying, but it ain't gonna happen. Nighty night, Bambi. Man, I dropped him. How about that? A whole deer. Wow. The buck stops right there, huh? Right, Dad? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> say, Dad. When I get to be president, are we gonna go hunting anymore? Sure, son, you know. Yeah, we'll hunt. Uh, you know, son, why don't you go up there and check on your kill? Go, go on. I'm All just right. going to sit for a minute. Go, go on up. That's a good idea. Yeah, right out there. Nah, can't even think about it. First of all, against the law. Babs wouldn't like it. Well, it's probably just four years. Hey, wait for me, son. I'm right behind you. I mean, here's his idea of who Bush is. He's a meathead. He's violent. He's, you know, kind of weak and also, like, bullying at the same time. He's a weird combination of, like, dumb and sort of sly. He's sort of honest uh, and straightforward, but kind of delusional about his own strengths. You know, he's kind of all of the dimensions that I think Will Ferrell does really well. But I think what horrified McKay in a way that I relate to, because I felt that way in 2016, is like, what kind of country elects a person so badly qualified for the job? And I think that's what I see in a lot of his comedy right after he leaves Saturday Night Live, is like him looking at kind of like, what is America made of if this is the kind of person that we have elected to lead us? You know, Amer like, even from something like Anchorman, I think that's a lot of what he's talking about. Like, what is our history of being kind of like meat-headed, dumb-witted, know-it-all morons? And like, where is this leading our country? Where are we going to go? Well, but I also think, you know, what's going on here is Bush gets reelected and McKay is blown away. Like, whoa, wait a second. Maybe we are wrong or what, like, what is, what are, what are people seeing that we're not seeing? Right. And I think that that actually is a really interesting question because when something like that happens, you have to then Admit to yourself, all right, I'm in the minority. What are people seeing? And I think part of that discovery process was what are people relating to? And I think that was the impetus to this idea, right? Because Talladega Nights is a movie. You could argue that this movie could be made by Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy, and no one would talk about it, right? But because it's made by Adam McKay, you could have the same exact jokes. It would work the same exact way because this movie is a movie for middle America. Like, it, it, like it is a huge hit. It crosses over in a way because it is having fun with these stereotypes of the South and and also these flyover countries, whatever that you want to say that is. But at the same time, it's not ridiculing it. It's not it's not speaking down to it. It's not being like and fuck them for believing that. And I think that's really what's incredibly interesting about this film. And I would argue there is an element to that 
in Don't Look Up as well, where he is trying to not, let's go less political and go more about like, well, there's a bigger issue here. And I think what he's doing in both of these movies, Talladega and uh, Don't Look Up, is going, it's not that the people are bad. It's not that the it's commercialization or the media that kind of starts to distort this vision. Like these are the enemies. The media is the enemy and don't look up, right? It's like, how do I perform on TV? What's going on here? And in and in the Talladega Nights, these corporations, they don't care about the people or the individuals. They just care about getting the points. I think that's represented by like the son of the racing, uh, you know, the the young son there. He's like at the end wants to buy stock in Halliburton. Like he just cares about points and getting money, you know? So it's like, well, yeah, there is, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... Like his attack on the news, I really love. I mean, because he is the guy who made like Anchorman. The people who make the news love Anchorman. But over the years, Adam McKay himself has said that he sees Ron Burgundy as almost like the villain. Like he and his friends destroyed America by creating cable news. That's why he even wanted to come back with Anchorman too to kind of show like, no, 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 please. These guys are not the heroes in everything they do. But I think what he says in Talladega Nights is that America is a country with severe daddy issues. You know, that we're taking our lessons in machismo from the wrong guys, like right from the beginning of the film, when like at parent day at, at Ricky Bobby's school, his dad, Reese, comes in and tells the whole class, here's how you should behave. Mr. Bobby, there's no smoking in here. Oh, it's all right, darling. I'm a volunteer fireman. OK, I am a semi-professional race car driver and an amateur tattoo artist. And the first thing you got to learn if you're going to be a race car driver is you don't listen to losers like your know-it-all teacher over here. Okay, I think that's enough. The teacher wants you to go slow, and she's wrong, because it's the fastest who gets paid, and it's the fastest who gets late. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, I do feel like America, in the grand scheme of things, is like a teenage country. You know, we're just sort of getting past our pimply, weird, awkward stage. Now we're sort of in, like, our swaggering, I got my first Camaro stage. I think you're right. And I think this idea of like, they they actually articulate that really well with his two sons in this movie. Like when Jane Lynch kind of puts them on the straight and narrow, she like straightens them out a little bit. Like, look, there's bigger things here. You just can't be these cocky assholes. Like, you know, she straightens them out because I do think there's this thought like we live in America. We're going to do things our way and forget about it. And I do think that there's this idea that you know, Ricky Bobby believes in himself. And he, at the end, he races under the, you know, the ad of me, right? Like our, like his sponsor is mm-hmm. me, right? But this yeah. idea like... You, you know, are the person of the year and me is the person of my car. Yes, exactly. And I think that there is something where it's like, they think it's about the individual, but then they realize, oh, they're just a cog in a bigger part of the system. And that's how the scientists are in the uh, in Don't Look Up. I think that's how the uh, the financial guys are in the big short. They think they've gained it. And then they realize, oh, no, it's so much bigger. And then they fuck up everything. It's like it's sort of like everybody thinks they're in control. Like they have this machismo and this idea like. And same thing with Ron Burgundy. Ron Burgundy's a guy who's like, I am the best news anchor in, you know, in San Diego. Nothing can take me down. And then, you know, cable news comes in. You know, this idea that, like, it's always these cocksure people like, I got it figured out. And they're not looking as the wave kind of just comes and gets them. It's kind of like what 
Hunter S. Thompson says in Fear and Loathing, like there's a great thing about the wave coming. It's like this, you know, this wave is coming up behind us. that's going to engulf everybody. Uh, and I think that that the American attitude is not to look in your past, not to look in your present, just to be like, I got this. And, you know, yeah. it's, it, you see I it mean, in how cocksure he is about getting his arm broken. He's like, no, 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 break my arm. And that like, you know, that that sets off a chain reaction. Like, it was all self-inflicted wounds. Everything is a self-inflicted wound. It is. It is. And it comes out of this mentality that I feel like feels very American, especially in the way that in 2006, we were just like plunging into wars and wars and wars and expecting us just to wag, wave, wave flags and everything be OK. You know what the philosophy is in this movie is here. You win or you crush. Dick Bergman in Las Vegas, victory lane for Fox Television. Ricky Bobby, today's big winner. A heck of a win for you today, but it seems as if you either win or crash the car trying to win. Well, Dick, here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence, and nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a, just a big, hairy American winning machine. If you ain't first, you're last. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That phrase is trademark, not to use it the British, but Ricky Bobby Ann. I would even say that more than win or you crash, I think the idea is if, if you're not first, you're last. I mean, that idea is so, it's such a terrible way of looking at anything, right? Like, if you're not first, you're last. If, you know, and that, and that actually, that was a, a Vince Lombardi quote. You know, he said, like, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing, you know. And then, you know, if you're not first, you're last. This this idea that there is no, you know, second place is first place for losers. Like, that idea is so part of who we are. And this idea of, like, we are superior. We have nothing to learn. We'll go to a foreign country. Or, like, the idea of, like, the ugly American is based simply on that idea. You know, we're the best. You don't yeah. have anything better than us. And I mean, when that's what that's why I love that scene when uh, Sasha Baron Cohen comes up and says, you know, well, what tell me what America has. that's so great. And they're like Chinese food. I think what you are hearing is my accent. I am a French. You say French? We? Oui. We? Oui. No, we are not French. We're American because you're in America. OK, greatest country on the planet. Well, what have you given the world apart from uh, George Bush, uh, Cheerios, and the Firemaster? Chinese food? Chinese food. That's from China. Pizza? Italy. Chimichanga? Mexican. Really, smarter pants? What did French land give us? We invented democracy, existentialism, and the menage a trois. (laughs) Those are three pretty good things. (laughs) Hey. That last one's pretty cool. We created the missionary position. I mean, we should talk about the idea of French people as villains, because this is coming out of like a really specific moment in American history Mm -hmm. where, you know, 2001, 2002, America was furious at the French because they didn't support us invading Iraq in the wake of of 9-11. And like... If you forgot how crazy that time was, I mean, I pulled up some news clips because I just think it's amazing. Like first, people here in Los Angeles were in the streets pouring French wine into the gutter in anger. Well, the Iraq debate continues to stir emotions and protests around the world. In Los Angeles this hour, supporters of the use of force plan to protest France's opposition to war by pouring bottles of French wine in the gutter outside of the French consulate. 
blood the French have never spilled for freedom. I've been quite disgusted with the way the French have turned this into an anti-American affair. I think that we need to support America, support our troops, and all the people who are against America. We need to show them there's still support out there for what President Bush is doing. There were people like who owned diners all across America who were like switching the name of their fries to Freedom Fries. This oh is God. this even takes place in North Carolina where a lot of Ricky Bobby is set. Roland is uh, he's the operator of this restaurant. It's Cubby's in Beaufort, uh, North Carolina. And there's Neil. He's joining us now live to tell us what this is all about. Hey, Neil, where'd the idea come from? We opened up our menu and the word French just took us and grabbed us. So all of a sudden we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change our French fries to Freedom Fries in support of our uh, president, also our troops, to show support. I guess they don't have French vanilla ice cream or I guess not. French poodles at home. Well, maybe, not, maybe not. French manicures. That's interesting. And unless you're like, okay, well, maybe that was just some random people doing some random stuff. No, in Congress, the congressional cafeteria changed the name of French fries to Freedom Fries. Congress did that. They have been just as crazy. I think they're worse now, but they were just as crazy back then. Roland is the, he's the operator of this restaurant. It's Cubby's in Beaufort, uh, North Carolina. And there's Neil. He's joining us now live to tell us what this is all about. Hey, Neil, where'd the idea come from? We opened up our menu and the word French just took us and grabbed us. So all of a sudden we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change our French fries to Freedom Fries in support of our uh, president, also our troops. To show support. I guess they don't have French vanilla ice cream or... I guess not. French poodles at home. Maybe not. Maybe not. French manicures. That's interesting. And it needs to be a symbolic gesture. We in the nation's capital need to send a signal. We need to tell our troops we're with you. We did it. And today, you can have your, your toast. Just make sure it's freedom toast. I will say, like, I went to um, Bentonville, Arkansas. You know, like Walmart town, where mm-hmm. like Walmart is headquartered. We're in the town square. Yeah. You could go to the Walmart Museum and there was like a Confederate statue right in that town square um, and like a old school soda shop and an old school diner. And that old school diner in the year of our Lord, I think this was 2017, uh, still had freedom fries on the menu. And I was like, that's amazing. And so I asked the waitress even about it. And she was just like, I don't know. She really didn't have an answer. But like. That town hadn't let it go. That town has one of the world-class art museums in America. That diner had not let this go. But what I think this movie does so well is it shows you the other side of America, which is, yes, the French guy is the villain until he starts winning. And then he's a fucking hero because we like winners, right? America loves winners. And when you see everybody wearing the Jean Girard shirts They are celebrating him and they accept him for being gay. Now, at this point in 2006, when this comes out, we have kind of really leapfrogged ahead with the way that we accept gay culture now. But in that time, this was a you know, this was probably a lot more shocking than in watching it now. Like, um, you know, so much so that I think the point back in 2006 is even stronger. Like they don't care that he's kissing, that he's gay because it's that he's a winner. He drives fast. And I do think that that's some of the energy that you see and, you know, with certain political candidates. Like, well, I, I like him because he speaks his mind. He does his business. You know, he's he's a man of the people like that's that same energy. Well, he's a winner. He's a millionaire. He does it right. Like, so it's like I don't like it's it's the, the, the I always go back to that thing that I remember seeing with Obama when he was running 
and Joe the Plumber. And I remember Joe the Plumber came up and he's like, well, what about, oh, you know, God. taxation for millionaires? And, and you know, Obama was talking about that. And it's like, this guy has been bankrupt three times or two times or whatever it was. He was bankrupt. He was not a millionaire. He was in line to get the benefits that Obama was there to talk about. But he was too concerned about going like, well, but what if I become a millionaire? Like, and then what, like, what, how are you going to fuck me over when I become, it's like, no, man, you can't even sustain now. Why are you worried about being a millionaire? Like, you know, it's like, you know, it's this idea that, but we all look up to that. And I think there is an energy there. And I think that that's what this movie does really so well. It's not, it's not about attacking people. It's not saying, oh, people who like George Bush are dumb. It's like, no, this is why this guy is elected. This is why, because there's a familiarity, there's a coolness, there's a swagger, there's a energy to him. And it's not really about politics. It is about personality. Who want, who do you want to have a beer with? Remember that? Like yeah, Al Gore is a real he nerd. Drink because he got like a DUI and he's not allowed in Canada. But he got a DUI. Who do you want to have a beer with theoretically? I mean, By the way, this they, movie like, does the, the, open up the same way as yeah. Cheney or whatever that movie, Vice. I thought there's a lot of similarities to Vice in this movie. Well, yeah, for sure. And I want to get into that. But also like... Okay, in the movie, Jean wins. In the movie, Jean starts winning races. But, like, if you're just asking knee-jerk an audience who they like in this crowd, it's not this guy when he's not winning. Like, there was a point when they took, you know, when they actually went to Talladega, they shot, they shot a bunch of stuff there. This movie had, like, NASCAR's full mm-hmm. buy-in and support and everything. They helped him with get designers who would make the cars look authentic. They did the whole thing. But they went to Talladega. There are 200,000 people there. I mean, Talladega, like, the real, the real event is so crazy that when it actually happens— that area, the whole speedway overnight becomes like the second largest city in Alabama. That's how many people just like crowd in wow. to watch this race. So they're there, they're filming. They introduce, you know, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley and Sasha Baron Cohen to the crowd, but only in their characters, right? So they're like, here's Ricky Bobby, here's Cal. And then they introduce Jean. And when they get to Jean, everybody starts booing. They don't know that it's Sasha. He's not even that right. famous yet here. No. They just start booing because he's a French guy. And he and like Adam came up to him afterwards and he was like, are you OK? Are you going to get depressed? That was a whole stadium booing you. Are you all right? And and Sasha Baron Cohen was like, oh, I've just lived this. Like he had just gone in character as Bruno to an Alabama Mississippi game. Yeah. And when he went out there with the cheerleaders, he was like 90,000 drunken men wanted to kill me. You can actually hear some of the screaming in this clip. he got out of that crowd is because he switched clothes with his sound man and that is how he escaped oh i mean but you remember the the wrestling match uh the steel cage wrestling match uh, was that in bruno or borat the bruno where they basically set up this like mma match and then he starts making out with the guy in the 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 in the cage people go crazy they're trying to climb in they actually built uh, a trap door in the in the ring and a tunnel underneath so he could get out so he is done this or will do this but again you're right like but to your point freedom fries pouring wine in the street they're just seeing that but i also would argue that this movie puts even uh leslie bibb in the same position as as jean gerard which is sort of like 
she's with Ricky Bobby. You like her with Ricky Bobby. But then the minute she sees that Ricky Bobby's not going to win, she goes with the next guy who is going to win, right? Because she can't be with Jean Girard because he's gay. So she's going to be with the number two. She's going to move up the chain. Like, and, and you don't even see anything from her like, oh, I regret this choice or anything like that. Like, she's like, no, I am, I am moving up to winners. Like, it is all about winning and winners. And it's, it's just an interesting idea that, like, she is, I don't think that she's a villain. I don't think that anyone really is a villain. You don't think, like, oh, she's got a bad marriage. It's like, no, no, she just wants to be with a winner. I mean, and she is yeah. who she is. I think Lizzie Bibb is so hilarious in this movie. She's great. Like, apparently when she has that line where she's like, I'm a race car wife. I don't work like that. That was the point in the premiere when they showed this to NASCAR fans that everybody laughed and they finally knew that the NASCAR people were on board with the movie because oh, yeah. they're like, okay, yeah, you got us. That's true. I, I mean, but Judd Apatow was saying that like NASCAR guys were pitching jokes. He was like, you know, here's these guys that can drive cars at 150 miles an hour and they're pitching jokes that are funnier than us. Like they, they, I think they realized very quickly once they got into the world of NASCAR and really like understanding and respecting the art of what this is, which is an insane sport. And it's, you know, I think every one of them talked about the experience of being in a NASCAR, you know, and feeling that pressure and the speed and the sound, the respect that they got for being in this world. They really went into a world and I think they like lived it to a certain degree. Like, and I think that that's probably the best way to show something because I don't know if this movie is pointed as much as it is trying to maybe in a way wrestle with this idea that the answer to that question that we said in the beginning, like why was George Bush reelected? What are the things? And you see it time and time again here. It is about winning. It is about being charming. It is about, you know, it is about a down home, like a wholesomeness, a like, Crepes suck. Pancakes are great. Even though I like a crepe, I won't admit that I like a crepe because crepes suck. Like, you know, like, like that idea. Like, yeah. And so you I think that this idea. You can break my arm and I will think that I'm tough. But and that's our politi- gets the last line. He's like, yeah. like the frightened baby chipmunk, you are scared by anything different. And, and, and that, that is, this is the truth. That is and, the truth. Like the people who are the most afraid of the world are the people who haven't had a chance to go see anything. And like, I, I, I would anything, argue I wish that's... we could give like all American kids a passport when they're like in high school. And I wish, I wish this country would spend like every, would, would, I wish this country would take every American kid outside of the country for like a month in high school. Wouldn't that just be wonderful? Yeah. I, to be forced to be a stranger in a strange land. Yeah. Like I think, but I do think that what you're seeing here too is the digging in for principle, right? Politically, uh, you know, our country is at odds because you have two sides that are digging in on both sides. And it's not like, let's compromise. And I think that there's a lot of ideas of we would like to compromise, but I think there's a lot of like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. The only way this is going to work is if you all come over here or you all go over there. And it's like, and it's not because they don't believe in that thing. Like Will Ferrell, I like crepes. They are delicious. And he talks about them at great length. He's like, well, will you just say you like thin pancakes? Nope. And then, (laughs) you know, that's the kind of the argument that you get, like Joe Manchin or whoever you're talking to is like, Everyone in your state is benefiting from this. Nope. Nope. Because I'm not doing it. And it's like, without being political, just showing an attitude of, I don't want to be seen lesser. Because even even when 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 you, you know, there's that moment where John C. Riley like leans in and goes, hey, man, I got to tell you, 
I think that you should. And you think, oh, he's going to say like, you should just say, I like crepes. He's like, I don't think you should say it. You know, it's like, it's like that, <laughs> it's like that whispering in his ear. It's like, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's, it's a really no, I mean, astute political commentary. It's an astute country commentary without feeling like it's, it's really about how people are affected without saying these people are dumb because they're not dumb. They're just, they are being influenced by a lot of different things. I mean, I am too. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It feels to me like a whole movie about daddy issues, like our president having daddy issues. You know, like the whole thing with Ricky Bobby is he's trying to live up to his dad, Reese Bobby, who taught him certain things and all he wants is to win to impress him. And who do we have in office? We have a guy who like wants a war in Iraq, just like his daddy had, and he wants to impress him. And can he impress him with this war? It's it's just the same thing being repeated over and over again. And I think that's hilarious. And that's why I love that it is in the world of NASCAR, because it gives you an excuse to have an American flag behind everything and people sort of subconsciously making that point over and over again. We're talking about America when we talk about this. I mean, one of his kids is named Walker, you know, as in Texas Ranger, but that's Bush's middle name too. Walker, George Walker Bush. I don't know so, if I would go that far. But it is true. I mean, I, I know mean, it's true, but I mean, Walker, but do, you like know? Uh, do you know but a I mean, but Walkers? That, no, how but Walkers the joke know? is Walker, Texas Ranger. And then they say, we're going to name well, him Dr. Yeah, Print Medicine. But why woman. do you think they chose Walker? Te- There's because a million. It's the so they could have chose, they could have chose Starsky and Hutch. They chose mm. Walker, Texas Ranger. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't, I, I think Starsky and Hutch is not as relevant and uh, as much as, Okay, but, they could have right. named him after the Dukes of Hazard guys. Bo yeah. and Luke Duke. They could have named it Bo and Luke okay. Duke. Okay, we're you not going to see eye to eye on this one. I don't believe that they choose I don't think Walker that, by coincidence. I don't think that they're embedding it that much. Honestly, like Ricky Bobby has the the swagger of George Bush, like in many respects, you know, I think, you know, I think he does. I mean, that's, well, they're yeah. not, they're not, they're not gigantically different characters. I mean, you know, or at least really. in the way that he portrays them. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what I love about, like, the stretch of films that McKay did with Will Ferrell. Is to me, they all feel kind of like a joke on American delusional exceptionalism. Yeah, we talked about doing Step Brothers, too, because I love that movie. I think that whole movie is about, like, people who are just sure they're the best without any evidence. Kind of like how this country can be sometimes. Um, well, but because we are told, and I think this is, you know, we, like, look. Not to make it so whatever, but we were talking earlier in the episode about the Academy Awards and how they're eliminating these certain categories that are deemed boring, right? So maybe when people watch the Academy Awards, they don't understand that like people get their starts and shorts. People, There's actually people who score the movie. There are people who actually edit the movie. I think a majority of people, if you ask them, would think a director edits a movie. Right. Like and so the more you start to erase this thing and make a singular winner, 
it is a director. This is the director's movie. This is the star's movie. You start, you know, I would say so many actors I've talked to, myself included, when you work with like a hair and makeup person to create a look for something that you do, that is a big part of your character. Um, and you have a part in it, and part of the creation of that character starts in that trailer. But you take away the recognition for that. You take away all this sort of stuff and you just leave the stars, the director, the picture. You eliminate like the steps to get there. And I think that, you know, you can go to something like Hannah Montana. I started remembering like when Hannah Montana came out, I started talking to kids who were like, I want to be a rock star. I want to be Hannah Montana. Like people just wanted to be famous. I don't even knew why they wanted to be famous. And not to say that Hannah Montana was the start of it, but it felt like there was a shift there. And there was no reason like, well, why do you want to be famous? What are you going to be famous for? And look, you can get into the whole thing about Kim Kardashian. And is she, you know, is she famous for what is she famous for? What does she do? And I do actually think that Kim Kardashian does a lot. Uh, but this idea that I just want to be accoladed and I don't want to actually do the work. And I think that that's, that's across the board, left, right. That's, that's something that's out there all the time. Fair point. And I will say to the hair and makeup of it all, when you read the interviews that John C. Riley did right when this movie came out, the main thing everybody wanted to talk to him about was having a mustache. They were like, let's talk about your mustache. Let's talk about you having this mustache on your face. Let's talk about being the guy with the mustache. And I just love his performance in this movie. Like this is to me the grand shift for John C. Riley too, where he proves like Yes, I can be a comedy star. The only time we've really gotten to talk to him on the show before was when we did Chicago. Right. You know, where he is like, where he plays like the kind of dumb husband who gets kicked around. I mean, somebody asked him on this press tour, like, who is smarter, Cal or Amos, your guy from Chicago? Um, this is from Marissa. Who is smarter, Cal Naughton Jr. or Amos Hart, your character in Chicago? Huh. Well, they're both really dumb as a box of wood. Let's be, let's be honest. I have a lot of affection for both of those characters, but they're idiotic. So it's like so, comparing two rocks. Which one's more rock-like? If, if Amos and Ricky or Cal were like trapped in the bottom of a well, who would figure out how to get out of there sooner? I think Cal would eat Amos. He would eat, dismember him and eat him before... So he Amos, would attack him yeah. and kill him. But here's an interesting thing. It's so a he'd bit, eat him to survive? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I love that this is like where we open up the door to John C. Riley proving that he can be like the most versatile actor. Oh, I mean, don't you think the Boogie Nights in 97 does that a lot? I mean, he it he does, is unbelievable in that movie like, well, and, yeah, and but fluctuates between stick. both. Yeah, but not not this big. He's never done a big comedy okay, a big like before. a big like broad. Okay, but I I would say that that character is pretty okay. I mean, yeah, that again, these are funny, but like it's not this big, right? You know, like and what I what, but what I think makes him so special is like he commits as though it is a real drama. Like I love the way that he plays Cal because I think he plays Cal dumb, but without making fun of him. I think Will lets his characters be the butt of the joke a little bit more, which is great. I think it works for his characters, but like. There's something seamless and weird in the way that like John C. Riley plays Cal. I feel like if you cut Cal in half, you would just see John C. Riley like all the way through. Like he's just intense. The way he like sits in chairs when they're in the hospital, putting a leg up on a couch, you know, the the space he takes up, he looks like a real race car driver to me. And I mean, he yeah. had played like race car drivers before. Like he was in Days of Thunder. That's one of his very first performances. He played a guy named Buck Brotherton 
And that movie is terrible as a Tom Cruise lover. That's probably his worst movie, I would say. Mm. And like people, the NASCAR people booed it when it came out. They hated Days of Thunder. They were kind of prickly about this movie at the beginning because they're like, oh God, not again. But this is the movie where we, I think we do get to see that shift in John C. Riley because it's after this that then, you know, like. You see like Walk Hard and you see, uh, you know, you see these other bigger yeah, roles. Yeah, Tenacious or these bigger D, comments. Step right. Brothers. Well, he was doing Tenacious D on stage with them back in the day. Yeah. Like that was like a, he was, he was performing as Bigfoot and stuff during the live shows when, you know, he was part of, you know, John C. Riley has been a part of Largo and, and, and Tenacious D has been part of Largo. He was in the comedy community and that's yeah. PT Anderson. All these people were there. I just He's think that he like got a chance funny. to, yeah. yeah. I like think I got a chance to show more. Anchorman, but he had to say no to Anchorman because he'd already said he'd do the aviator with Scorsese. I mean, that's, a, you know, it's pretty like his coming solid. out party. But that, but, but you can talk about that with Adam Scott as well. Adam Scott was in the aviator and then pops up in Step Brothers. And I think that in many ways, that performance of Adam Scott in Step Brothers launches him as an equally compelling comedic actor as much as a serious dramatic actor. Because before that, I think he was just a dramatic actor, you know, and I think you get that a lot of times. Like John, uh, John Hamm, guy who hangs around with a lot of comedy people, gets this opportunity to do an incredible uh, dramatic piece in Mad Men. But then when he gets a moment to pop in something, whether it's Bridesmaids or SNL or 30 Rock, people are like, oh my God, he's so funny there too. But it's like, oh, he's just, that's part of his personality. He just didn't get a chance to show it yet. Well, yeah, um, they're all great. But John C. Riley is my favorite. I love John C. Riley. I, look, you're not going to get any argument from me. This cast is amazing. Jack McBrayer, also fantastic in this movie. Uh, you know, Jack from 30 Rock. Ian Roberts, who is an amazing writer, part of the UCB. Dave Keckner, who you know from Anchorman and a million other things. Just a great crew. I would say if I'm going to pick any, like, weak spot to me, and this is a very... Uh, very hard for me to say, but I would say Michael Clark Duncan is not as facile as everybody else. And I noticed it more in this walkthrough because it seems like he is being improvised at and he is staying on book. Like it doesn't feel like he, like everyone is just hitting it out of the park. What I love about this movie too is McCain Will built this very simple structure that allows just a million alts within the film, like whether or not it's the interviews during the final race where it's like, hey, I'm here with Kenny Rogers, the guy clearly who's not Kenny Rogers. Like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, it's like, or it's just the, you know, moments of the kids insulting uh, Leslie Bibb's dad and just like, just can go on and on with insults. Like they, they really can open up every one of these scenes just a little bit more because there's like this space just to be, to let the cameras kind of roll whether or not they're at the bar and Jack is talking to Ian Roberts and saying like, oh yeah, I want to get my grandma something. She's turning 80 and he's like, get her coffin. He's like, I'm sorry, like, get her coffin. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like, so they're, they, they build this structure in there. And I think that you see that in a lot of his films. Uh, but, you know, I think Jonah Hill is getting a lot of attention for what he did in Don't Look Up. But that video that if you have not seen this video of Meryl Streep improvising and don't look up, it's fucking phenomenal. It's like she's improvising a different phone call at the beginning of the scene when they're walking into the office and don't look up. And she does like 20 different phone calls that are all incredibly specific, fully realized. And it's, uh, and I think they just had to pick one of them, but it's, uh, <laughs> but like, I, I think- do love that he lets, that lets this ability to kind of, even in that movie, everything to kind of be fluid. 
I love that you see that even the outtakes of this where John C. Riley has that string of just like mm-hmm. his different versions of what baby Jesus could be. Oh my God, yeah. I like to picture Jesus like a mischievous badger, like a muscular trapeze artist, like a shapeshifter or a changeling like that guy. Ever hear that TV show Manimal? I, I like to think of Jesus as a figure skater wears like a white outfit and he does interpretive ice dances of my life's journey like a dirty old bum and he comes up to me i'm about to sock him one because he's a dirty old bum and then i said wait a minute I better not sock this guy something special about him yeah. and it turns out it's jesus yeah i do think i mean that dinner table fight about like who is baby jesus to you who now i'm even calling a baby jesus who is jesus to you who is jesus to me I love that because not only is it really funny, I think it kind of speaks to a deeper idea about how people picture the religion that they want it to be. You know, it speaks to the idea that like people have their own different versions of religion in this country right. and like they've warped Jesus to fit their mindset. Yeah. Well, you know, Jesus people, does people what- People invoke like, his name to back yes, up their argument. Exactly. And you know what I love about that scene too? It's like, it is the- it's the vision that we want to make our lives feel good, right? And and I think this is this idea of this bigger entity. And I would say it's even shown in the in the corporatization of this movie, right? When you cut to that dinner table scene, it's a slow pan across KFC, Taco Bell, Coca-Cola, <laughs> Bud Light, and it's Powerade. It's basically that dinner that 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 uh, Trump had for all those athletes. Yeah, He's remember like, that? Congratulations, yeah. it's your fast food smorgasbord. You know, and it's but like when you're seeing this idea of corporations, like corporations make these, you know. They are manipulating this family. It's like, well, this is a good meal. This is what a healthy meal is. This is what you want. The corporation is bigger than the person. And I go back to this idea because I think it's really shown so beautifully in that scene at the end when Ricky Bobby and Jean Girard's cars are exploding and rolling over each other. It's an amazingly big sequence for this movie. Like, it looks awesome. They cut to the booth. And they go, oh, my God, this race, this is an accident's going on forever. Let's cut to a commercial. And then they cut to like a TGI Fridays commercial, Applebee's, like a Applebee's, Applebee's steak commercial. They can shrimp. And then and they, like they're leaving potentially the death of two people to cut to a commercial sponsor and then get back into the action like that to me feels like this idea of the corporation, the money men always win out. Those are the people that are making all the money at your expense and they will use you and they will spit you up. And that is, I think, something that Adam McKay is always showing through all of his films. It's like, you cannot fight the machine. The machine may make you feel comfortable. The machine may give you, may may boost you up, but you will not fight that machine. Like, you know, you you cannot win, I guess, yeah, against he's that machine. A, he's a classic Gen Xer. He, like, is one yeah. of the last people, I think, believes in the spirit of selling out. Even though I have no idea if Wonder Bread paid him to be, like, all over this movie. No, they didn't. Uh, Actually, like, none of those didn't? people. Yeah, no. None I was of those, wondering that. I was yeah, wondering that. none of the sponsors. I think, basically, uh, the idea was that uh, Wonder Bread, Old Spice, and Perrier were not charged for product placement. Uh, Ugh, Perrier Old so Spice, perfect. I know, and Wonder Bread promoted the movie through back-end deals, while Perrier was not required to take any action despite its presence in the movie. Uh, Now, in addition, Will Ferrell did show up to many public appearances in his Wonder Bread uniform at at no charge to the company. And the other product placements, you know, Powerade, Coca-Cola, Domino's, Nextel, NASCAR, Valvoline, Budweiser, Lowe's, Ford, Sprint, Applebee's, Goodyear, Fig Newton, uh, they, uh, they also were not charged. I think it was the idea was just like, 
we are just going to put these in, you know, this, this, it, we need it. We need that to yeah. be the backdrop. Like it, it doesn't look right if it's all fake. I mean, like the day after Talladega Nights opened, he got a phone call. Have you heard this story? He got a phone call from Michael Moore. And mm. Michael Moore said to him on the phone, you son of a bitch, you just made the most subversive movie in the country and nobody knows it. Right. Well, this is what I was saying early on. And I didn't mean to like belittle this movie and say like, oh, uh, Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy couldn't make a, you know, this movie is on their level. I'm just saying that like if they did make it, it wouldn't have brought in the other audience. Whereas this movie brings in people who are like, I want to laugh at this because I think these people are dumb. And it's like and people are like, oh, actually, I like NASCAR. And I think what it does, you're right to this point. It creates a subversive nature because people are coming there to to laugh. And then I think they're hopefully getting a better sense of understanding, like the culture that we're in. I think that you actually have you leave this movie with a little bit more sympathy. No, you're right. I mean, because like not only is NASCAR a huge fan in ways that still resonate. There was a time in uh, 2009 when um, one of their drivers, Edwards, crashed his car doing Talladega and did the same thing that happens at the end of this movie. He just decided to run across the finish line as his nod to Talladega Nights. Yes. He knew it. He gave an interview about it. You're even listening to the Fox News announcers. They know what he's doing. Not sure where Carl's going. Maybe he thinks if he runs across the start-finish line, it'll count. That's what he's, that's what he's doing. He's that's gonna, what he's doing. He's like a mar- You know how he is. He's an athlete, a marathon runner. I want to finish the race. And he did yes, to he a did. standing ovation from the crowd. Shades of Ricky Bobby. And yet, you know who else is a giant fan of of Talladega Nights? No, who? Christopher Nolan. Here he is talking about it. Gosh, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of comedy. And for some reason, that always surprises people. I guess because my films are a bit serious. Um, (laughs) And uh, I've I've developed a sort of... um, reputation for being a big fan of MacGruber, which is, is definitely a silly film that I am a big fan of. Uh, but uh, I really, and there's so many, but uh, Talladega Nights is a great, great favorite of mine. And I will also say that Ricky Bobby is somebody that is held up in high esteem on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Tim Pawlenty made a, a, a big showing every time that he would talk about his wife, he was my smoking hot wife. He would double down on this thing all the time when he was running the most, he was the most boring person running for president who had the most weird thing that he did all the time, which is comparing himself <laughs> to Ricky Bobby. And I do think that there is room for this kind of stuff. And I do think that um, if you can make a movie that appeals to everyone, especially a comedy, like, you know, I think that we get we can get up our own asses sometimes about, well, that's not funny or that's too broad or that's too this. This movie is unequivocally hilarious. The performances are great. I don't think that McKay is selling out in any way. I think he's making his own movie, but he's making a movie, like you said, it, it is subversive. It has a point of view. And can you make something that is political without it? being overtly political. And I would argue that that's maybe some of the notes that has been given to Don't Look Up. You know, it it is a funny movie, but is it too political? Well, yeah. I mean, like, McKay in interviews has said that it has gotten harder to do comedy, you know, to try to, like, figure out how to do what he wants to do in it. You know, he said, like, you know, back at the time, like, Will and I were able to do movies about mediocre, oafish white men who are entitled. 
you know, but comedy needs to have real teeth to work now. That comedy about relationships, careerism, your own self-image, it doesn't work. That comedy is in a weird spot. And I think it is harder for him. I mean, I feel like people are too sensitive to, to preachiness. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think as soon as a for movie sure. tells you something that you think you know, you hate it. And I don't know why. To me, that, that almost feels like Reese Bobby being like, don't let your teacher tell you what to do. Like, you can't tell me. what to do. It is almost very us that we don't like movies that agree with us. But, I, but I feel this way about Michael Moore. Uh, like, I'm like, who are you? Who are you preaching to? I'm here. Like, why are you yelling at me? I'm but here. I still I, feel like I have learned so much from Michael Moore. I like, have too, but there's, like, a, but yes, but I think that there's like an energy to it. And I think that this is the fine line of like, how do you do something that illuminates something without it feeling like I'm bopping you in the head? And maybe like here, like here's a great example. Maybe, I don't know. The Atlanta episode about like Juneteenth. I think mm-hmm. many people's first exposure to Juneteenth was through that Atlanta episode. And it wasn't like, listen up, you dummies. Like, this is what it, this is about. Like, I think it, it, you know, I like, again, it's a slightly different, but I think it's like, can you bring people in without making them feel like I'm in class? And I, and, and that's, I think people wrestle with that all the time. And, and when it's done really well, I think it's way more effective because this movie you could put on a million times. I can't watch Sicko a million times. No. You know, I can't watch Outfoxed a million times. Uh, no. You but know, I, it's like, you know. But I do think we have some sort of knee-jerk reaction to like, do you think I'm stupid to tell me something that I already know? I think we feel hostile towards But that. I think it's and the I, tone I, I'm in not which it's saying, said. I'm, I, true, but I also think we could we could ease it back 20%. Mm, okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, you know... I'm mixed on it because I think that whenever you feel like something is preachy, I believe that the same thing that we're talking about in this movie can happen to people who are preachy, which is like, I'm the smartest, I'm the best, I'm going to tell you what's going on. It's that same cocksureness, but it's in a tweed jacket and glasses, you know, and it's like, it's, it's that same, you know, it's like, I'm not looking at anything else. I'm just here to show you how smart I am. And I think that people don't react to that. I think that people turn off to that. But I Look. also wouldn't be surprised to like mm-hmm. go back and if you talk to movie fans on the street when Doctor Strange Love came out, mm-hmm. were they like, "Oh, yeah, these people are dumb. War, nuclear war is stupid. Tell me something I don't know." Like, I wonder if it's easier to see a movie as less preachy when it's not our time anymore. Well, but this movie wasn't seen as preachy. Well, yeah, because it did it more subtle. But I wonder if that if if things will change on Don't Look Up, like thirty years from now. You know, where people be like, I think don't, don't look, look up. up. Thank God we had that. My issue with don't look up in 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 a very major sense is I think coming on the heels of COVID, the message about climate change is lost. And it feels really about how we handled the COVID crisis through this disaster, impending disaster. And that's a bummer Which to is me a because, bummer because they started yeah. shooting it before COVID and then they had to stop. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that climate issues are something that, you know, are incredibly important and something that I'm invested in as well. And I just think that it's hard when we're just coming out of something like this. That's what I think gets a little bit muddy with it. But I don't think that that movie, I think to that movie's credit also, it doesn't drive a line of like politics. It drives a line of media and it drives a line of of commerce. Like the reason why the president doesn't blow up the asteroid is because she understands that she can make more money. They can yeah. actually get money from it. It's I mean, not that about Mark a Ryland's political character is my favorite part. Like I think he, yes. the, the tech bro, I think that is the best thing of the movie. 
And and I think that that's and I think them that people, and the media people Tyler Perry and, and Kate yes, Blanchett. Yes, I mean Kate yeah. Blanchett, amazing. And the, the scene with Kate Blanchett in bed with uh, DiCaprio is phenomenal. One of my favorite scenes in the entire film. But like the idea that I think that people always say, "Oh, McKay is so politically, so politically, so political," but it's like that movie is not political. It's showing how like a very simple issue can be co-opted by factions mm-hmm. for their own purposes, whether it's a multi-billionaire trying to get richer to get technology, whether it's the media trying to be like, hey, let's not bring it down too harshly. You know, it, it, it's... Yeah, it, gotta keep it, it de- light. Yeah, and I think it devalues and I think in a weird way, like uh, Vice is probably the only McCain movie that is overtly political. Like, it, it is like... it. I don't think there's a spin on it that much. It's kind of just like here's what Cheney is, and 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 so in a weird way, like it, it doesn't really have the humor that we're looking for. Where even like the Big Short has a lot of you know it's really yeah. interesting. But I do think that that's that's my issue with just saying McKay is political. I think that he's still doing the same exact thing with Don't Look Up. But now people's buttholes are clenched. If yeah. that's that, that, that's the technical way. I mean, of that's saying the, it. that is the technical way of putting it. God, I will say, though, how much I love Amy Adams in Vice and how just mm-hmm. great it is here. I mean, she's only just gotten nominated for Junebug when she does this movie. So people have just sort of learned her name, but not even really yet. You know, she doesn't become a star until after this movie when she does Enchanted. And like you just see the future Oscar winner in this movie when she gives that speech about like coming in on your skeleton horse. Ricky Bobby is a driver. He is a doer. And that's what you need to do. You don't need to think. You need to drive. You need speed. You need to go out there and you need to rev your engine. You need to fire it up and you need to grab a hold of that line between speed and chaos and you need to wrestle it to the ground like a demon cobra. And then when that fear rises up in your belly, you use it. And you know that that fear is powerful because it has been there for billions of years and it is good. And you use it and you ride it. You ride it like a skeleton horse through the gates of hell and then you win, Ricky. You win. And you don't win for anybody else you win for you you know why because a man takes what he wants he takes it all and you're a man aren't you aren't you you forget that she's in the movie yeah totally. you know, because, that's a weird thing it kind of throws off balance look if i'm gonna like if i'm gonna be critical about this movie i will say the second act is way too long it's like an hour right like it is like i'm like wow we really are still motoring in this this middle ground like as he's kind of finding himself again um but i think that that's because there's a lot of funny bits in there and it all like i I wouldn't say i don't know what you would cut out but it's like but when she comes back in we're like bam like all of a sudden you for remember her the energy gets back and then you just fly through the end in that piece but she's so good and i thought of her as such a bigger part of this movie before I rewatched it. And I was like, oh, she really is like only in like three, four scenes. Yeah. But boy, does she commit. Yeah. I mean, and now, of course, she has like Academy Award winning, wonderful actress, Amy, mm-hmm. uh, Amy Adams. But like when this movie comes out, this movie, of course, does not get nominated for any Oscars. And maybe you forgot about this, but this is like, this is so you, Paul, that at the Oscars, Will Ferrell came out and sang a song with Jack Black and John C. Riley about how unfair it is that comedies do not get Oscar votes. It's an honor to introduce a close friend of Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell. (laughs) 
A comedian at the Oscars The saddest man of all Your movies may make millions But your name they'll never call I guess you don't like laughter And a smile brings you down A comedian at the Oscars Is the saddest, bitterest Alcoholic Cloud Jack Black Will Ferrell What did you think when you took off your pants And you ran around that racetrack And you did that silly dance What did you think I thought they'd love me What did you think That you could change their wicked game Did you think when you made Anchorman They wouldn't call it lame What did you think I thought I'd get to have dinner with Jeremy Hires. Well, Amy, I'll tell you this. I am friends with uh, a lot of people in this movie. Uh, and when I walk around with them, to this day, Talladega Nights is what people yell at. I mean, I was with Riggle just... Riggle has a very small part. Rob Riggle has a very small part in this movie. He's like one of the uh, ESPN sports broadcasters that they cut to like once or twice in the film. Um and when I'm out with McBrayer, people like this movie has a legacy and, and you know, and Riggle yeah. is phenomenal and Step Brothers and uh, so much great stuff. Yeah. But it's like Talladega Nights, especially like I remember being in Atlanta with Jack and uh, it was nonstop. No, nonstop. Jack Love. apparently learned how to change tires and be a full pit crew. Like they actually made like him and Keckner and Ian Roberts like learn how to do all that stuff I heard. I heard they got it down to like 22 seconds and they're pretty proud, but like a real oh, pit wow. crew does it in 13. So they weren't wow, quite good enough, amazing. but they were yeah. pretty, pretty good. And they made everybody race for real. Like, well, they, yeah. Yeah. They like put like Sasha and John C. Riley and Will Ferrell like on the track and made them go. Who do you think was the fastest? Well, I heard they only did one lap and they all got out of their cars and they decided to be in like a travel van uh, behind it. No, they made him drive. Yeah, they did one lap, freaked out, and then actually yeah. made them drive again. Uh, my gut would be... Mm, uh, Will. Mm, John C. Riley, baby. Uh, okay. That guy that was can my do first, anything. That was my first gut, uh, but then I changed it up. However, the racing scenes in this movie, great. I love that they actually hired the DP of Born Identity to shoot this, because I think that Talladega Nights looks like a real racing film. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have that comedy look that you and I have kind of grumbled about sometimes. Like, I think the color palette in certain scenes really pops. And then when it's action, it is full on action. So it also doesn't feel empty. Like, and that's the thing I think is so interesting. This movie is expensive, right? No doubt. But it also doesn't feel empty. Like, where it doesn't feel like they were shooting where no one was there. There was no crowds. And I think what you're saying, they mixed and matched a lot of stuff. They did, you know, again, the middle hour is just Will by himself, primarily, you know, on this journey with uh, Jane Lynch and and, uh, and a little bit of Gary Cole, who's also fantastic. But yeah, that that final section of the movie, I mean, it is... Those are explosing, uh, explosive jacks, you know, and uh, pipe and plating footing. Like, you know, this is this is like a this is a big, big thing. And this movie becomes a, a big hit for a lot of reasons. But, you know, I think one of the other reasons why this movie is a hit besides box office is, do you know the little secret about this movie? What? Well, it was a uh, Sony movie. Right. 
And so uh, when Sony launched the PlayStation 3, they included a Blu-ray copy of this movie in the PlayStation 3. So the first 400,000 PlayStation 3 systems had a copy of Talladega Nights. Oh, that's awesome. So I think it like literally put it in people's households and again, grew this fan base. And, and, And we're talking about like the response to this movie. Like we know that this was such a success like this movie was a a hit um i mean critically what did people think of it critically this is one of the better reviewed adam mckay films i was shocked going back and like realizing how much people hated stepbrothers because to me stepbrothers is just like his most beloved but like when stepbrothers came out ebert lost his mind he called it the feel bad comedy of the year he was like when did comedies get so mean like he was furious. He was like, sometimes in his review of Step Brothers, he said, sometimes I think I am living in a nightmare. All about me, standards are collapsing, manners are evaporating, people show no respect for themselves. I am not a moralistic nut. I am proud of the X rated movie I once wrote. I like vulgarity if it's funny or serves a purpose, but what is going on here? He really saw Step Brothers as the end of times, but Talladega Nights, actually pretty beloved. I had to dig around for a negative review. The one that I pulled is from the Globe and Mail, and they called it. A sketchy sketch comedy where some scenes work pretty well while others fall dead flat. The prevailing wind in contemporary American comedy is blowing from the red states. A blue-collar humor wrapped around redneck sensibilities is all the rage. This leaves Farrell and company with a choice, whether to treat the trend as a lucrative path to follow or a fat target to satirize. Unsure or perhaps just unwilling to alienate any potential audience, they do a little bit of both and not enough of either. So the table is piled predominantly high with boxes of Domino's pizza, bottles of Coke, buckets of KFC, product placement lampooned even as it is cashed in on. Yes, the Jesus jokes like the product placement are carefully balanced on the blunt edge of satire, almost funny, but never offensive. So everything that you're kind of, you know, nodding your head to and grudging respect that it balances, the Bogoba Mail was like, no, 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 you should have gone harder. And also, like me, they didn't know that he didn't make any money from the Domino's. Right. And I think that people want to find these stories and, 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 and this is also the problem of it. It's like, why can't we just enjoy these characters? Why do we have to make fun of them? Why do we have to treat them like they're idiots? Why can't we see ourselves in them? Like the idea, like, oh, they didn't go hard enough. Well, no, they actually presented them in, I think, like a respectable way. They didn't make them to be these stereotypical dummies. The movie doesn't work that way, you know? And I think, but I think that some people want that like go for the jugular thing. And, you know, we forget like with a like secession, which is an Adam McKay produced uh, show. Like those are the scum of the earth, right? Like those are the big, that's corporate. Like that is the head corporate honchos. You know, they are, they are picking presidents. They are affecting laws. They are above the law and we love them. Right. Like we want to see them and we get excited when they partner up and they betray people and they backstab you like you have to have, you know, like that movie isn't or that TV show isn't about uh, giving them their just desserts to make you reflect on it or make you actually look at it like you have to make them likable. And I think that that's what Secession does so well as well. Totally. So, so where should we go next? I have a suggestion. Great. We've talked about it in this episode. I feel like it is only natural we do it. I think that in honor of Licorice Pizza being nominated, we finally do a P.T. Anderson. Ooh, okay, great. I and love that. I think we do a Boogie Nights because even in that Oscar number, John C. Riley is getting to sing about it. Paris, 
Madness must stop. There is no need to fear. You can have your cake and eat it too. Just look at my career. I didn't cry in the blues. I didn't pick silly fights. I chose to be in both boogie and Talladega nights. right. I'm going to reread that script about the guy who gets lead poisoning and then sues a major corporation. There's not a laugh in there. Yes. And I'm going to take that project about the guy with no arms and legs who teaches gangbangers Hamlet. Now we're talking. I'm going to lose 40 pounds to play Ralph Nader. I'm going to do that gay coal mine and film with James Spader. So Anthony Hopkins, you can laugh, but someday I love that. All right, so take a listen to the trailer of Boogie Nights. My name is Jack. Eddie. Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams from Toys. Yep. Jack Warner, filmmaker. Filmmaker. Adult films, exotic pictures. see you next week for Boogie Nights. It is available where everything is streaming. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, listen to our special episode about Ivan Reitman, uh, which is available in your stream right now. All right, we will see you next week for Boogie Nights. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there 
where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.